Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode five of series seven of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. As my guest today explains, unicorn startups are brilliant, but let's be honest, very few of us will become, found or work for one. Many people listening today will work for large companies struggling to keep themselves relevant for the ever-changing customer. A handful of these companies are very good at reinvention. Our guest today calls them Phoenix companies. They are able to rethink themselves in cycles, time and again, they rise from the ashes of the old and they come out stronger than ever before. How do they do this? What is the culture and leadership that drives this? And what is the role of HR? My guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast today is Peter Hinson, who I had the pleasure of introducing as the opening keynote when I was MC at Unleash's flagship show in Paris last October. Peter is a serial entrepreneur, advisor, keynote speaker, and author of a fascinating new book, The Phoenix and the Unicorn. He is one of the most sought after thought leaders on radical innovation, leadership, and the impact of all things digital on society and business. He lectures at various business schools, such as London Business School and MIT. In our conversation, Peter and I discuss why organizations need to become better at focusing on the day after tomorrow. We talk about the role of HR in enabling and driving innovation in their organization. We also talk in quite detail about what HR can learn from marketing when it comes to delivering on the employee experience and understanding its customers, in this case, employees. And we also look at whether AI and automation is a threat or an opportunity for HR. This episode is a must listen for, for, for anyone, frankly, but HR and business leaders looking to develop their organizations, looking to develop their culture uh, and enhance their leadership models, and also to, to understand the role that HR can play in driving innovation within its organization. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 7 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Cruncher is a self-service solution for workforce reporting, people analytics and workforce planning. The best thing about Cruncher? It's simple. The solution is designed to guide HR professionals through their data to discover the real story. Cruncher works in over 35 countries worldwide, with large companies that typically have more than 20,000 employees. Learn more about guided people analytics and their unique adoption strategies at cruncherapps.com. That's crunch, letter R, apps, all one word, dot com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Peter Hinson, author, speaker, co-founder and partner at Nextworks and lecturer at London Business School and MIT to the Digital HR Leader podcast. It's great to have you on the show, Peter. Wonderful to be here. Can you provide this as a quick introduction to your background and, and, and what you're currently up to? Sure. I, I spent almost 20 years in the startup scene. So I had the chance to start early on when I was in my 20s. Um, I built uh, a first startup in the mid-90s, which was acquired by Alcatel. It was a large-scale content management platform. Uh, the second one by Vodafone. And the third was a company we IPO'd in uh, 2006. And in 2010, I decided to change completely and leave the startup life behind and focus exclusively on, on maybe sharing some of my learnings. Uh, that's where the teaching came in. Um, and then I wrote a few books. One of them was Digital is the New Normal. That really took off. And now I spend most of my time working with large corporates. Uh, ironically, after 20 years of startups, I work now primarily with you know, traditional companies. But I love those companies that are capable of reinventing themselves. And that's what I really try to focus on. And we're going to talk a little bit about that yeah. today because that's the theme of your, of your new book. Um, now, I, we came across each other at Unleash. I've seen you speak at a number of shows there over the year. 
Um, and you spoke at the the show in Paris last October when yeah. I was uh, I was moderating the MC, yeah, emceeing yeah. the main stage, which was great. And for anyone who even has a passing interest in the future of work, I really recommend seeking out a show where Peter's speaking at. Thank you. I've always enjoyed the way you contextualise our exponentially changing world, which is probably a big topic at the moment. What are the key evolutions that you are seeing and what are the consequences for organisations? Well, I think um, one of the wonderful things that we've seen in the last 10 years is um, that a lot of these new technologies actually grow very quickly. And we see that even more in our personal lives than sometimes in the work environment. But when I wrote Digital is the New Normal 10 years ago, I had no idea what actually happened so quickly. And I think what we're beginning to see is new normals, and I call them new normals plural, are beginning to surface and actually become new normal very, very rapidly. And when people say, oh, what's the new, new normal? I say, well, there's not one anymore. It's a selection. It's a combination. Uh, Social is the new normal. Um, Big data is the new normal. Mobile is the new normal. The cloud is the new normal. I mean, we see all these different things rising very quickly. And I think we might be getting into what I call the never normal. We, We see a sea of constant change, and we have to get used to that. And I think this is something that we struggle with in our personal lives. Uh, When I look at my kids, I have a 20-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old boy, and they're constantly challenging me because for them, this is simple and normal and the the most natural thing in the world. And I have a degree in computer science, and I'm I'm constantly asking them, how do you do this or how does this actually work? And when when yeah my 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 daughter was you know she she tricked me about a year year and a half ago she had to do something for school and talk about what she wanted to be yeah and she said i want to be just like you dad and i thought wow this is one of those moments where you think wow and she says if i see that you travel around the world talking about new technologies and how little you know must be the <laughs> easiest job in the world and i think this is something that we see and if you then see how difficult it is for companies, organizations to adapt to these new normals. That's why we had this disconnect between the startup world, which take this for granted, and the traditional world where this is still a challenge. But new normals and maybe bracing ourselves for constant change and constant disruptions, that might be actually the never normal that I talk about. And when you look at disruption, we've, we've had digital disruption and we spent a lot of time talking about it in the last 10 years. But if I see disruption that are going to hit us in terms of food or agriculture or health or energy, my God, I, I don't think if we, if you would be able to find a, a history book of the 21st century and, and take a time machine and bring it here, I'm not even sure that Facebook would be a chapter. Maybe it's a, a side note. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we've seen enormous change, but we really have to brace for, I think, fundamental change and a never normal and I guess that makes it really hard. The bigger you're, an organization you are, generally speaking, the harder it is to, to move and respond and to try and be ahead of what's going on, which I guess is the subject of, of, of your new book, um, The Phoenix and the Unicorn. You know, it, it examines what enables certain companies to regularly reinvent themselves. Yeah. Um, so can you provide a synopsis of listeners, you know, what they can expect to learn from, from reading the book? Yeah, so the the idea behind the Phoenix and Unicorn actually came from observing some companies that that were sucked into disruption and were capable of reinventing themselves and coming out stronger. And and you would call this the rarest of beasts because, as you said, it's easy when you're a startup. And and I think that's the reason why we've seen the unicorn craze in the last 10 years. Yeah. New companies with no legacy, no what I call shit of yesterday, uh, they just start with a green field 
can grow really quickly because they get new things fast and they become something which is an established economic environment. The Googles and Facebooks of this world. And now we've had 10 years of unicorn craziness. I'm getting a little tired of the unicorn stories, but I really believe that the next 10 years could be the decade of the phoenixes. And those are companies capable of reinventing themselves, maybe going through a difficult ride, but coming out stronger in the end. And, and in a way, I get more energy from looking at a phoenix than yet another unicorn. Yeah. Because it is easier to do it when you have no legacy holding you back. But if you are a traditional business and you've always done it that way, there is such a momentum to keep on doing what you know, that is wrong. And I think that's where you probably will separate the, 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 the ones that can, the true phoenixes, and those companies that are probably going to be disrupted in their very core business. But the phoenix is very real. I mean, you see a lot of examples now of companies really taking charge, and, and I get a lot of energy from observing them. Yeah, I think you cite in the book, you know, examples like Walmart, which, you know, a very traditional company, but is definitely leading the way and in innovating, you know, what, again, is quite a traditional um, kind of kind of industry as well. Yes, and, and Walmart has probably been the number one inspiration for writing the book. Um, I had a chance to go there about two years ago for the first time just to do a lecture. And I, I wasn't expecting much because I knew them and, you know, they're the largest traditional retailer on the planet. But I saw them as a 20th century icon, not a 21st century icon. And what you saw there is um, they were hit by the Amazons of this world, primarily Amazon, who was not just selling books and CDs, but started to get into groceries and mm -hmm. online groceries. And that was all of a sudden changing the entire landscape for a company like Walmart. And to see a company like that uh, with 2.4 million employees, can you imagine that? I mean, it's a, it's a small country in, in Europe. 2.4 million people changing what they do, how they do it, and reinventing themselves. And they're headquartered in, in Bentonville in, in northwest Arkansas. I've been there many times. And every time I go there, I get such a jolt of inspiration from seeing what they do, um, the, the technological innovation, but also the social innovation, the way they think about new organizational forms. But their core business model is under attack, and they need to reinvent themselves. And to see a company like that actually succeeding because they're now outperforming Amazon and online groceries is a wonderful thing. So it gives me a lot of strength to see that these phoenixes actually exist. Yeah, I think I was at the Wharton People Analytics Conference last year and someone from Walmart was speaking about how they're using VR in recruiting and, and in training and development. Yep. And they showed this video effectively, you're a Walmart employee and you were, you were, it was a scenario where there was a, a, a shooter in a gun, someone with a gun in a store, and they showed how yep. you can track that person and, and, and teaching the staff what to do, which is incredible. You know, yep. that, that sort of level of technology being used for learning and development, you expect it from Google and Amazon. You don't necessarily expect it from Walmart. So it was... No, and I think the, the, the nice thing about Walmart, and of course the shooting example is a little bit you know on, on the one side of the, oh, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's other slightly more palatable. Yeah, and I think what is interesting is Walmart is being changed by technology. So uh, they have massive pickup towers in every Walmart store, which allows you to take a parcel and it's connected to the warehouse. And you come in, scan the app, you get your parcel in 10 seconds. But they need to train the associates to deal with that technology, to work with the new tools. And the same VR that's used in the shooting example is used to train the Walmart uh, employees to use these new technologies. And I think at this moment, I don't know, have, I think it's 
1.4 or 1.5 million people at Walmart that are being retrained using technology. And they're using technology to train these people to use new technologies. I mean, that's the fascinating thing about this. And if you see the speed and the scale at which they do it, I think um, it took them a long time to realize that they really needed to act. But once they got into, you know, and they kicked it in high gear, it's amazing to see that kind of a transformation. So there's a nice link between the phoenix and the unicorn in your previous book, The Day After Tomorrow. And that's why I've seen you present on a, a couple of times on stage at Unleash. And that seems to cover what you need to do to innovate, how to make an innovation a reality, and then how to act on their day after tomorrow. Um, and one of the ways you talk about how to bring that to life from the, ha the how is the hourglass model, which I think would be something, A, I think our listeners would like to hear, but also something we potentially can apply within HR as well. Yeah, so if the, the, the book The Day After Tomorrow was really a little bit of a wake-up call on the fact that we need to look at things not just right in front of us, but things that used to be far away, but you will have new technologies, new business models, um, new mechanisms, new ideas, and they are what I call the day after tomorrow, but they're hitting us faster and faster. So we need a lens to do that. Yeah. But then people said, wow, that's really great, but how do you do that? I mean, yeah. how do you make that uh, a reality? And I, I came across the hourglass model with one of the customers that I'd been working with. It was a, it's a company called Medtronic. They're the largest yeah. uh, maker of, of medical devices. Most people know them because they're the number one pacemaker company in the world. But it's a huge company. And, of course, that world of healthcare and, and medical devices is changing at a rapid pace. And they used to have a, a, a wonderful business, but they were on their own. But now everybody who wears an Apple Watch actually has their heartbeat you know, yeah. connected to the Apple system. And, and it's not unthinkable that Apple is going to play a role in these types of environments. So Medtronic realized they really needed to reinvent their, their lens onto the day after tomorrow. So I, I, I learned the hourglass model from them and I developed it a little bit further into the book. But the hourglass is a typical shape where if you look at the top part of the hourglass, that wide part at, at the top, this is your lens, yeah. where you need to look at the day after tomorrow. And that will be new ideas, new technologies, new business models. But you need a bigger lens than ever before because it's not going to come from your direct competitor. It's going to come from all over the place. But then you need to narrow it down. And that's where the top of the hourglass starts to you know, get more you know, specific. And then you need to try things. You need to experiment. And that top part is what I call sense and try. This is where you have the wide lens and you experiment. And when you figure out what to do, then you drop it into the bottom part of the hourglass. And this is where you need to scale and run it in the yeah. most efficient way possible. And I would argue that most companies at this moment already have a very well-developed bottom part of the hourglass. They're really geared towards that. And when I look at Medtronic, they realized that when they looked at, for example, new technology investments, that more than 95% of their resources, money, budget, people were being allocated to the bottom part. They were spent on, on you know, lean and Six Sigma and scale and efficiency and, and brilliant. But less than 5% was in the top part. Yeah. And since then they've shifted that. They now have up to 30% of their resources and budgets in the top part because they need to be open-minded and try things. And it means that you reallocate resources. And there are two things that I've learned is, first of all, what is the ideal, um, you know, is it 30, 70, or is it even 50, 50 in the future? And I think companies that get into um, 
uh, an environment where things are happening and changing faster, they're going to have to reallocate that. Yeah. It also means that maybe the culture of leadership in the bottom part and the top part is different. And the most important thing is they need to be aligned. I've seen many companies where these two exist, but they're not aligned. And then you have a very frustrated part of the organization doing amazing, innovative stuff. And you have the rest of the organization thinking, what, what are they doing? And I think the alignment, the difference in, in allocation and leadership, those are things that I think many companies are going to be faced with in, in the next 10 years. And HR potentially could be one of the functions that's helping making sure that that alignment is there. Yeah, I think if you look at the hourglass, I think HR can play a crucial role in, in ensuring that alignment. I think, but you can might even apply the hourglass to HR itself, the HR function. I was thinking I that mean, you were speaking. Absolutely. How much of the, uh, the budget of an, or the resource of HR is spent on running HR? And how much is it on having that wider lens to look at new ideas or concepts or technologies that could influence the bottom part of the hourglass? So let's talk a little bit more about the kind of how H, what HR can learn from the hourglass model. So I think from, from interpreting what you're saying, this is where analytics can come in at the top half to, and, and, and can really help organizations understand how things work from a people perspective and how that relates to some of the things they want to do on the business side. So if you're innovating in new areas, mm -hmm. you need to make sure you've got the right skills in place. You need to understand what those skills are. And you can be doing that kind of evaluation at that phase and then thinking, how can we make that work within our organization and then scaling that? Is, is that, is that would that be one of the, the things that you would see? Absolutely. And I think it's not just that. I think there's so many opportunities and concepts and technologies that are available, and but you have to be able to leverage that. You need to understand, you need to experiment, and then you scale. And I think if I make a comparison, I've I've often seen that um, we've actually seen that happen in the last 10 years in the marketing side of organizations. Uh, because um, if I would do a presentation 10, 15 years ago to a marketing department and I would talk about data or analytics or algorithms or AI, they would have thought I, you know, I, I, I was a, a Trekkie or you know, they, they had no idea what I was talking about. I mean, but now if you walk into a marketing department of a, a company that really understands how to, how to leverage this, you have data scientists and they talk about algorithms and they understand customers in a way that we could have never even imagined a few years ago. So I think marketing has been transformed in the last 10 years in a significant way. And I think HR needs to do exactly the same. There is a, a, a wide spectrum of new opportunities and technologies and they know that it exists but you need the right people to deal with that. You need people to try and experiment and you need to constantly be alert of all the new things that are happening and then you can try and scale it down and, and run it. I'm often amazed if I walk into an HR department of a big organization that even the tools that they use are very 20th century tools. And often they will probably use much more advanced technology at home or even in communicating with you know, their family members than actually what they're using inside the organization. And, and I think, expect their employees to use those 20th century tools as absolutely. well. Absolutely. And I think this is something where HR has a great opportunity in the next 10 years to maybe do the very similar thing that marketing has done, is to understand, leverage, and then be able to scale and maybe seen as, as a leader on how to reinvent organizations. And actually, the link is, is, is obvious in many respects, isn't it? Because marketing is about the customer, mm -hmm. a person or people. 
and HR should be about the employees, people. So you, there is a lot, I think, that HR can learn from, from some of the stuff that marketing's done. And, and I think even more, because uh, what we try to do, of course, in, in the world of the consumer is we try to really understand the consumer. And everything that dealt with analytics was all about understanding consumer behavior. But I think what is now happening is we can apply many of the same things to the employee, but it's more than that. The employee isn't an employee. This is an employee in a network. This is an employee in relationships. And it's going to be, in my opinion, more about the relationship analysis than just the employee analysis. But the potential to do something with that is insane. Mm. I mean, and we're basically ignoring most of that data at the moment. And I think it's something where um, you have to, of course, you know, respect privacy and make sure that this is done in, in, a, in a professional and, and secure way. But the potential amount of information that we have and, and that you can work with is, I think, something that HR could really use to reinvent themselves and, and come out stronger. In a, in a way, HR could be a phoenix in, in the it next could. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And I think it's that, it's that fair exchange of value, isn't it? You talked about the privacy, the importance of privacy, and I think that's something that I see with the companies that we work with from a people analytics perspective. But if you're providing that fair exchange of value and giving something to the employees, then, 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 then why not? Um, and I think um, the other sort of theme I was thinking around there is this whole thing around experience. So again, from a lot of that those data points, marketing learn how to personalize things for, for, for different customer, segment their customers very well, and they personalize things for them. We can start to do that with, with employees. We can understand more about moments that matter for, for individual groups of employees yeah. and actually serve, serve stuff up that's data-based to, to help them and help the organization. Yes, and I, I really believe in that exchange. Uh, and I think we're beginning to see that in the consumer environment. Um, I mean, uh, privacy is important, but um, we see more and more of the consumers are saying, you know what, I'm willing to share more if I get more. And I, I'm certainly one of those consumers. I mean, I take Waze as an example. I wouldn't drive around Belgium where I live without using Waze. And actually, the more I give them information, the smarter they get, but yeah. I get value in return because I get to my appointments on time. And I think we're, we're starting to understand that type of you know, give and take type of mechanism in the consumer world, but I'm absolutely convinced this has enormous potential in how we think about employees. I mean, it's not just the, the, the moments, but, but you know, employees are, are giving off information and they, they're radiating data. And if you would find some mechanisms to bring that back and turn that into value for the employee, where they understand, know, and it can improve them, it can help them think about their career and their development and their relationship, their network. And I think especially with the next generation that's coming, I, I hate the term digital natives. I think it's one of the dumbest things we've ever invented. The next generation isn't digital. They are network natives. They have learned how to behave in the network. And I think if you can put the power of analytics and AI and combine that with a network-based approach, you have an enormous potential to actually make HR stronger. But the role of HR is going to be less on the operational side. It's going to be a lot more on the creating value side. And that is, of course, something where we're probably going to need quite different people in HR as well. And more rewarding potentially for, for HR as well if they're creating value rather than you know, controlling, uh, which is, I guess, the, 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 the traditional HR function of the past. I'm going to ask you a question now about the key attributes of a successful Phoenix, but I'm going to hypothesize one. You talked about the power of networks, and I wonder if 
one of those key attributes is the fact that they're able to understand how the network works within their organization and make sure the right teams are collaborating with each other. Yes. I'm sure there are others as well. Yeah, absolutely. If I would look at the, the key characteristics that make a phoenix really successful, one is very clearly a sense of urgency. And of course, you have many sectors now which get into you know, the, 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 you know the, the vortex of disruption, and then it becomes very apparent. I take the retail example, Walmart was doing fine, and then Amazon comes along and just shakes up everything, and then you realize we're in the middle of this. Yeah. And I think we're now seeing sector after sector get into that. I mean, I think finance and insurance companies and banks are next. I mean, but it, this is something where the sense of urgency needs to be tangible, not panic, but sense of urgency. And this is something that frustrates me from time to time. You probably have the same thing. You get invited to a company to do a, a talk, and you talk about all the things that are changing, and they love it. And then they invite you back a year later, and you think, wow, I'm curious what they've done. And they've done nothing. And you ask them, but you know, what, what, and they, well, and then you get the feeling that sometimes what we do is, is we, we talk about the changes, but then I, sometimes I feel like it's like executives who watch a zombie movie, you know, and, and they go back to the comfort of their house and say, oh, thank God it wasn't real. Huh? But yeah. this yeah. is something where the sense of urgency needs to be very real. The second thing that I think is very important is you need to develop a clear vision of where you want to go as a company, um, taking into account your legacy because you have legacy. With the Walmart example, they have 5,000 physical stores in the U.S. And you can't just close them down no. and just become purely online. You need to figure out how to combine online with offline. But that's a vision you need to develop. The third thing is, is very clearly what I would call uh, true leadership. I mean, you need people at the top who really believe this. Um, going back to the Walmart example, one of the great things is the CEO, Doug McMillan, was, I think, one of the first CEOs of Walmart who had a lot of international experience. I mean, Doug McMillan ran international. He saw what they were doing in China. And maybe even more than Amazon, he saw that how China was rethinking retail. And that really gave him a top-down commitment to say, this is what we're going to do. A very important aspect is, I think, empowering the innovators. I meet too many companies, you're probably the same, where you have some brilliant people doing day after tomorrow stuff, and they're the most frustrated people I've ever seen. If you don't really empower them, yeah. you're just going to make it worse. And the fourth is absolutely right. It's figuring out that this is something where it's not just about the outside world, about making sure that the customer is you know, drawn into the 21st century, but bringing the organization into the age of networks and figuring out how to maybe reinvigorate um, what you can do with the talent that you have in the company, I think that is absolutely vital if you want to reinvent yourself to be a phoenix. So you, you've talked about Walmart. Uh, there are other examples that you give in the book. Microsoft's one. Yeah. Talk a little bit about them. Well, I think um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see traditional companies reinvent themselves. Um, and in the world of technology, you say, well, it's logical, but it isn't. I mean, we've, we've seen in the last 50 years uh, amazing technology companies that have changed our lives just basically fall apart. Kodak is the obvious example, but even a company like Hewlett Packard, which you, know, you can still watch their original garage in Palo Alto, but you wouldn't probably call Hewlett Packard now you know, the most innovative company in the world. So it's actually maybe even more difficult for technology companies to reinvent themselves. 
Um, and that's why I love the Microsoft example. 20 years ago, nobody really loved Microsoft. We, we thought you know, they were quite arrogant, and the, the tax on the, the Windows tax and, and the Office tax. And then 10 years later, all of a sudden, this was a company in trouble. They were building mediocre products. Windows XP comes to mind. I mean, terrible. And, and it wasn't about the people. I mean, I think, I don't know who said it, probably somebody from Google who said, there's probably seven Googles inside of Microsoft, but they're not getting out anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was a company that was used to success, was in trouble. And under Steve Ballmer, I think they almost, you know, probably missed the entire, you know, they missed the boat almost. And then when you saw new leadership coming in, and I think Satya Nadella has been a great inspiration also in writing the book, to see them transform themselves, sense of urgency, but also a very clear vision on what they want to do. The first thing they did is said, we're going to stop ignoring that Apple exists. You know what? We're going to give out Office for free for people who have an iPad. That is a different positioning. Mm. But I think also the, the, the changing culture and the way they are rethinking the organization, I think, is phenomenal to see that. So for me, Microsoft is an absolute example of a phoenix. And if you see that they've changed their core business model from upfront payments to a cloud pay-as-you-go, without even one financial hiccup. They didn't miss a quarter and were able to do that and become one of the most valuable companies on the stock exchange. I think that's a great example of you know, what a phoenix can actually do. And it shows the importance of leadership and having the right culture. And it proves that big companies can change their culture. Absolutely. And, and of course, there's always a correlation with the leadership aspect. If you see Satya Nadella, I think he is probably the number one power of such a massive Phoenix transformation. Just as Doug McMillan is at Walmart. Or if you look at Disney, I mean, Bob Iger just resigned. Uh, but you know, if you saw Disney, which is a phoenix in itself. I mean, if you now see what they do with Disney Plus and they are, they're becoming a tech giant in a way, but I think a company that was not doing very well 10, 15 years ago with very clever acquisitions, everything from Marvel to Star Wars, I mean, fantastic Pixar, but then the leadership to actually transform the company is I think probably the number one thing that really makes the difference. So Peter, I'm gonna come back to something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation and it's something we covered a couple of weeks ago. It's about HR, really, and the, and the different skills that might be required. Actually, in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, you said all this stuff scares the living daylights out of, <laughs> of HR, which I thought was a great phrase. In, is that about mindset or capabilities or a bit of both? And, and how can HR step up? How has HR stepped up in some of the organizations that you mentioned, for example? I think it's both mindset and, and I think competences and skills. But um, I, I love doing conferences uh, you know, where there are HR people in, in, in the room because um, I have the same feeling as I had when I was talking to marketing audiences 10 years ago. But it's really, you often feel when you talk about these things, it's deer staring into the headlights of the oncoming car. And I think there's a sense of frustration with many of the HR uh, or, or organizations that I meet um, because they fear that they don't have the type of skills inside the organization to really tackle and deal with that. Uh, technology is something which is you know, still, yeah. I, I think, weak in many HR organizations. But it's also the, the, the mindset of trying things and experimenting. And just, you know, you know what? We don't know what the definitive new HR will be like. And we can't wait until the final HBR article is out. We're going to have to try this. 
And I think getting that mindset of experimentation going, and in a way, this is a perfect example now. I mean, we're in the in the middle of you know the the whole corona hype where the whole world is going into you know a lockdown situation but then you see that the potential of working remote and using new techniques of you know whether it's you know conferencing or different types of realities or mixed realities but there are so many opportunities to redefine work and in the last 10 years when you talk about the future of work many HR organizations would think about how they would rearrange the furniture. But that's not the thing. It's not, oh, open space or not. No, it's about fundamentally rethinking what is the fluidity of organizations. And in a way, you know, this, this biological disruption is a great test. But how many HR departments take that and say, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to change how we experiment. And I take the analogy with marketing 10 years ago. Um, digital happened and an online consumer became a thing and what happened is the IT department was actually not ready. It was the marketing department who took that and then you had a lot of the IT people saying oh it's not fair I mean you see marketing departments having more technology budget than we and and I think the I always joke that the worst job to have in, in, in the boardroom the last 10 years was the IT manager because the world was talking about self-driving cars, and you would ask the CIO, what are you doing? I'm upgrading SharePoint. Well, that was a, you know, not a good position to be in. But the marketeers seize that, and yeah, as a result, they, they understand technology now. The same thing is now happening in the world of HR. There are so many reasons to act. And I don't think HR should just sit and wait and say, well, IT should figure it out. No, this is their opportunity to rise and shine but it will be different skills and a different attitude. And I think if you have that, I I wouldn't want HR to be the worst job in the boardroom, Mm. but they're going to have to take charge if they really want to leverage this opportunity. I'm sure it's one of the most challenging jobs in the boardroom at the moment with the corona crisis, as you mentioned. And it's almost investing, HR needs to invest more at the top of the hourglass. Yes, More research, more experimentation, more analysis. uh, Wider lens and also bring in the skills that they can understand and experiment with these opportunities. And it means that they're going to have to invest in people that are data scientists and that are technologists and that are people who are going to have a very creative way of thinking about new concepts. But I think we're not just in a shift where the employee has to go into the digital environment. This is about where we're going to see different types of organizational structures. We're going to see fluidity happening and technology is going to help empower that. But it's not about tech enabling employees. It's about fundamentally rethinking what is the nature of work. And I think we're going to probably see a lot more fluidity and flexibility coming in. And that's going to be a huge change in the role of HR. And that transition is something where HR shouldn't be the operational partner. I think it should be the thought leader partner. It should be the challenger. It should be the person in the boardroom that everybody says, oh my God, HR is going to give a presentation. Wow, that's going to be really cool to listen to. Where in most cases, that is not the case today. But it's interesting, in the three companies you've mentioned as being Phoenixes, Microsoft, Disney, and Walmart, all have very visionary CHROs or chief HR officers, and all have very accomplished people analytics teams. Yes. So they've almost taken that cue from marketing in many respects and and brought some of those skills within to their people function, because ultimately, to be a Phoenix, you need to have the right people. 
Absolutely. And, and, and be able to adjust as, as you move forward. And, and I think uh, what you see is that in those companies, it was the, 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 the true leadership of the organization that needed and wanted extremely strong CHRO you know, people in that position. And if you would see the composition of the teams that they have in HR, it's fundamentally different than what they had five or 10 yeah, years ago. Definitely. And I think that is something which I think might be a clue for HR organizations if they want to try and reinvent themselves. And, and one other area interesting, something that we interest in the PwC CEO survey, I think, published in January, reskilling was, was one of the top four things on the minds of CEOs. And those organizations, again, that you mentioned, seem to be very good at understanding the skills that they need to, to, to actually reinvent themselves. So what, what, area, what are you seeing on things that, that organizations are doing very well around that whole reskilling and upskilling of, of their workforce? I, I think we're beginning to see that that idea of reskilling becomes the top priority of, of most organizations. And in, in the case of Walmart, it becomes a massive challenge just because of the scale. If you need to reskill more than a million associates, that's a big challenge. Yeah. And I think that the biggest problem is that, um, you know, one is what are you going to do with the older skills? Um, you take a company like AT&T in the US, for example, who have um, hundreds of thousands of technicians that were technicians for the 20th century, but in a world where all of a sudden you don't need to connect wires anymore, it becomes wireless, you need different types of skills. You even need to retrain the STEM people. You know? And I think this is not something where you solve it for digital. This is something where you're going to need to continuously do that. Yeah. So the, the continuous reskilling is going to be an issue. You see platforms in the U.S. like Upskill America trying to, you know, do best practices. I think in Europe it's going to be something that is something that we need to really step up our game. And of course, there's a link also not just to what companies are doing, but also the educational system and, and how we're going to maybe prepare people for continuous reskilling. I don't think we're doing a very good job at the moment. We talk about lifelong learning, but the reality is. How many 22-year-olds do you know who finish their education and say, oh, wow, that was fun. I want to do it again. Well, unless we get that mentality, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But I think a, a bigger challenge, I think, is going to be um, how do we make sure that people are aware that they need to, to do it themselves, that they should be more aware of how relevant are my skills. I always make the comparison when I talk about consumers. If you want to do something relevant to the market, there's only two questions. Are you essential? Do you provide things that people really need? And are you relevant? And if you don't have both, you probably have a problem. Mm. And we need to probably get that same type of thinking inside organizations. If you're an employee, do I provide something that is essential? You know, Because my company really needs the things that I do. Great. But then how can you make sure that your relevance actually goes up instead of going down. And there are too many people in organizations who I don't think have that mindset and culture yet. And in that sense, HR is probably going to have to be the guide to actually you know, focus on the relevance of employees in a world which is not going to slow down, but actually keep evolving faster than ever before. Well, Peter, really enjoyed the conversation. We're coming Thank on you. to the last question now, which is the one that we ask, we're asking everyone in this series. You know, again, you can probably extend beyond HR, but AI and automation, which is a big topic, as you know, across the industry, but certainly within HR, do you see them as an opportunity or a threat to HR? Absolutely an opportunity. And I think this is something where if you look at the bigger picture, the combination of AI and automation is going to change a lot of jobs. 
Um, but I think I, I'm a huge, I'm a perennial optimist on the fact that man plus machine is always going to do a better job than just either man or machine. Yeah. I, I was very fortunate to visit the Hamburg Opera House recently. Have you been there? I haven't, but it's on you my should, list of places to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is beautiful. It's, it's a building which doesn't have any right angle. It's completely organic. But it was designed by a team of architects and AI so that every person sitting there has perfect acoustics. And this is not something that one human could have done mm. or one machine. I believe in the power of human plus machine. And therefore, I don't think AI and automation is a threat, but you have to be realistic. You need to reskill to employ that. But if we do that, I think the power of using these tools is going to give us super strength. And that's what we need to focus on. Well, Peter, thank you very much for being on the show. My How pleasure. can people find out more about you and stay in touch? Website, www.peterhinson.com. Uh, and you know, it has links to the blogs and the books and, uh, and the, the lectures. Peter, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very thank much. You. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast and indeed Series 7. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe by podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode and indeed series seven of the podcast. We'll be back shortly. See you next time.